Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Mike. Hi, folks. This is Mike Cisneros. I'm a data storyteller here at Storytelling with Data, and I'm here with my colleague, Elizabeth Ricks. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi, Mike. You've had a number of workshops that you have led recently, and I heard that there were some interesting topics that came up for discussion. I think people are always surprised when they come to one of our workshops how much time we spend at the beginning around the importance of audience and context, right? Because if we don't get that right, the rest of the process is just less effective than it could be. We talk about the idea of crafting your main message and having this overarching goal. We call it the big idea, this North Star, that if you can clearly articulate what that main message is, then that helps you drive your content in terms of the graphs you choose, the path that you use, the overall narrative. But the specific question that we got was, what do you do if you have that message, but it's not what your audience wants to hear? So it's contrary to what they think or what they want you to show. Mike, what do you think about when we have to deliver bad news? If it is bad news that you have to deliver, I've always been a proponent of the ripping the bandaid off uh, approach of if you know that they're not going to like what you have to say, I think it's better to give them that news up front so that you can reassure them that you know that's not what they wanted to hear, but you're going to take them through the steps of how you got to that conclusion, which maybe is not going to be the best day for anybody, but at least at the end of the conversation, you'll both be on the same page as to this is why we are where we are and we can have an honest discussion about how we go forward from there. But everybody has different approaches to that. So part of our role as analyst is making sure that we have done a thorough analysis and we have not misled our audience into saying something that's not really true. And so if that turns out not to be the case, the data proves us wrong, then I would tend to agree with you in terms of being your approach and being the one to break the bad news. And I think there's just something about recognizing that with your audience and saying, hey, you're probably not going to like what I'm about to hear. I'm just the messenger here, but I'm just showing you what we found. And then there's something to be said about maybe walking them through all the different pieces to really show them, hey, look, this is the case, right? I'm not just making this up and taking a different level of the flow of how you talk about your data than compared to somebody. They just want to know and want you to get to the truth as, as quickly as possible. So it's just having a little bit of emotional intelligence, a little bit of empathy for your audience's position, which I think taking that approach can build rapport and build bridges, if you will. So what other questions have come up recently that you thought were interesting or that you wanted to talk about today? Well, another audience theme came up last week at a workshop. How do I know if I'm giving my audience what they want? I thought it was a fantastic question, right? Because so much of what we say is depends on your audience, what level of detail they need, how they like to receive information. So I thought this was a great question of saying, what does success look like? How do I actually know whether I'm doing that? My answer would probably be, it depends because different audiences are going to give you different levels of feedback. I think there's some 
immediate responses you have. Anytime you are with your audience in a synchronous setting, so whether that's physically in the room with someone or talking to them on a screen like you and I are now, nonverbal feedback that they give you. You can tell whether somebody's engaged. You can tell if somebody's confused. You can tell if you've lost them based off of their body language and where their eyes are looking on the screen. So anytime you are with your audiences live, there's a tremendous opportunity to get some feedback on whether the way in which you're communicating is resonating with them. Now, if you're not communicating live with your audience, then it's a little more challenging because you don't have that immediate feedback, but you do have other points of feedback. So you can pay attention to what questions they have for you after you've provided them Let's say you sent out a slide deck and then they write back in an email with questions. So you can garner a lot from those questions. Are they asking you questions about things that you've already given? them? If that's the case, that means that you probably need to tailor some things a little bit differently so that it's clear that you've already answered their question. It just maybe didn't come across in the way that you thought. Um, otherwise, you might find that they got what you sent, they understand it, and now they're asking you different questions, which I think is a good thing because that shows that they understand what you communicated and they're using it to think about next steps or it's prompting other questions and we're back in this exploratory phase. All of those are great things to keep in mind in the moment or after the presentation. I also think it's important to consider even before you do this presentation to get an better sense of what it is that your audience might want. We used to call this consulting for context, which is an official sounding way of saying you've got to ask around. You've got to do a little bit of research into who your audience is, what they care about. Talk to your managers, talk to other people who've been in similar roles. See if you can find other folks who've had to present to this specific audience in the past and use what you know about their experience with that audience to figure out what's going to resonate most strongly with that person. It is also important at this point to remember that you sometimes have this information in your head about other potential audiences that your colleagues might be presenting to. Or if you have direct reports who create presentations for you, they probably don't have a lot of information about their target audience, not to the degree that you do. So if you are their manager here, Share that information. Remember that not everybody knows all of the ins and outs of your potential audiences the same way that you do. So setting yourself up for success ahead of time, being present in the meeting itself, seeing what kind of verbal and nonverbal feedback you're getting, and then responding appropriately to the post-communication feedback you're getting. I think all of these things are good indicators of Am I telling my audience what they need to know? Am I being successful? These are all different tools that you can use as you go forward to maybe make your communications work even more effectively in the future. Communication is really two-way. It's not just about me and the data that I have or what I want to communicate, but it's about making sure that I get it to connect with somebody else. Let's switch gears now because I want to talk about something that happens in our online community every month. It's community.storytellingwithdata.com. If you haven't been there before and you'd like to check it out, we do a monthly challenge where we ask people to create a data visualization on a specific topic or in a specific manner. Elizabeth, what was last month's challenge all about? 
Yeah. So the storytelling with data challenge, we like to think of it as a way to try something new in a very low risk space. So this particular challenge was less about remaking an ineffective visual, which we have a ton of ways in which you can practice doing that in our community. So the new thing we were asking people to do is to partner up, right? Do this with somebody else, because there's tremendous value that you get in partnering up with somebody and working through and utilizing the other person's expertise that we felt was really worthwhile encouraging people to do, because this can be a little bit of an uncomfortable space. I think we have this tendency to just want to do things ourselves, and that feels easy, that feels natural. But as we learn, there were some benefits to working with somebody else. And we often do talk about the value of feedback at every stage of creating a visualization, even if you feel like you are going it alone or you're in your day-to-day job and you are just doing your work building your communications we do say get feedback get feedback when you're in the rough draft stage iterate through different ways and partnering up maybe is a good way to encourage people in this community who may or may not have connections to one another already to start practicing that kind of feedback i can imagine that would be a part of it that would be useful at least as a learning experience for some people and actually Along those lines, I'm curious, Elizabeth, did you actively pair people up? How were these partnerships actually created? We did have a way to facilitate partnering people up. So we had a discussion forum in our community where people could indicate interest. And then I just paired people up based off of experience levels, time zones. But we also just encouraged people to utilize their friends, their family. Like I said, we weren't prescriptive on who your partner had to be. And that was one of the surprising things I think we found when we looked through the submissions where some people worked with family members, some people worked with friends, which was pretty cool to see not only how wide range this can be, this particular skill set, but also what you learn when you work with people of different backgrounds and different levels of familiarity and different levels of expertise. So as an example, one of the submissions that I saw was from Bruno and he worked with a family member. And so he said what was really cool about that experience was this combined skill set. So his he was very proficient in the data visualization side of things, and his family member was more around the visual polish. And so he actually learned something about a completely different skill set. I thought it was interesting that some people, Robin Rouse, for instance, Stella Yordanova, did things with their children, whether they were high school age, or I think Stella has a 10-year-old daughter who she did the visualization with. Feedback, that second pair of eyes, can come from anywhere. Elizabeth, you wrote a blog post literally about this not that long ago, about how data visualization and communicating with data is starting to be taught to people younger and younger all of the time. I recently discovered how early on elementary school children are being taught around data and working with data in ways that I did not realize was being incorporated this early, which makes a ton of sense, right? Data is everywhere. And if you think about it at its very core, data is just information. We tend to think about it from a professional setting around sales trends or headcount or finance. But really, if you think about it, it's just numbers and pictures. And those are things that anyone really can relate to because if you understand numbers and everyone can see pictures, then you have an understanding of data visualization. One of the things we learned from this challenge is how wide ranging different people's opinions can be and how 
important their feedback is. So we do talk a lot about feedback and it's not just about us. It's about if we want to be effective in communication, it's getting somebody else's perspective because it is that two-way street. Now, one thing I did notice in, in, in looking through the comments was a lot of people felt very vulnerable. Mike, do we have any advice for anyone who just maybe feels uncomfortable? They're used to working by themselves and just putting themselves out there. How do you get over that? I participated a lot in storytelling with data challenges before I came here, but also in other public-facing data visualization initiatives. What's interesting is that these communities, whether it's ours or other communities of practitioners or data visualization enthusiasts, almost universally are supportive. Everybody wants to help other people get better at this kind of thing. If you are willing to share your work and ask for honest feedback, then you will probably get a lot of encouragement and support from the people to whom you are sharing your work. You, as a member of the community or as a person in the world, can keep this in mind and you can provide this kind of feedback that is constructive and positive. If you yourself are a little bit further down the road in your own personal development, remember that you were at the starting line once too. And the kind of advice that you would have liked to have gotten at the beginning is the kind that you could be giving to other people along the way. This is not a zero-sum game. Communication with data is something we can all get better at. It benefits all of us to help one another improve the effectiveness and practice in this safe space that we have available in the community, which is, I think, everybody who participated had that experience, whether they were able to reach out to somebody directly or whether they got that feedback from other people who were just watching or participating. Yeah, the word experience, I think, probably really sums up this challenge. It was more about the experience of working with people that I really noticed when I was looking through. Although it may seem easy to work by ourselves, we think it'll be faster, it's easier, we don't have to take the time to involve other people. I think the common learning that nearly everybody shared in their commentary was that they gained perspective, whether that's the importance of getting feedback. They learned a new skill. They learned a new tool. They made a connection that they weren't experiencing. So it was the difference between your own work, which was probably good enough as it was, and taking it from good to even better to great. And that's what working with somebody else can do. And it also builds rapport. There's something about going through a shared experience or problem solving together that I think builds teamwork and builds connections and builds that level of trust. Mike, I know you and I have, have had similar experiences <laughs> through the years, haven't we, around all the different projects that we've worked on? We did a sort of a live stream version of our workshop at one point in time, back when we were really only doing things in person. And we had this sort of newscaster style setup where we had to figure out kind of on the fly how to work together, but I think it, it worked out really well. But on a regular basis, we are collaborating all of the time mm -hmm. as we build out workshops for our clients and we're working with their data and remaking their visual, and, you know, applying our lessons to their stuff. We don't just sit in our little closed desks and do things on our own. We are always sharing them back and forth with one another and getting feedback from each other. And learning about what your perspective is on the same source material or on the changes that I'm making and I'm learning of yours. I often tell people in our workshops that we do for our corporate clients, nothing that you see here today hasn't been seen by other people at this company because we never just do something on our own. It is good to get different perspectives from everybody because those different viewpoints 
can help the final product be much better. And that's how feedback is. It's not about making sure that your ideas get into the final product. It's about helping the person who's working on these things achieve what their original vision is, what their goal is. And in this partner challenge, it seemed like some folks took that approach. They were the lead and they asked people for feedback on their entry. Other people seem to approach it as pure partnership where they came together. They, over the course of the month, because these are monthly challenges, they had meetings once a week and then they would work independently and then come back together and see where they were. Or some of the teams, I think, did sort of design shootouts like they started at the beginning. They said, okay, here's what we're going to achieve. Then they went off and did separate versions of it, came back, compared their two solutions and took the, the best of breed of all of them or figured out what they felt like the right solution was. One thing I'll go back to the live stream that you and I did was that was, mm-hmm. let's see, was that fall of 2019? So we yes. were doing a public workshop. And at this point in time, nearly everything, everything we were delivering was in person. But for this particular workshop, we were doing a live stream, which we've never done before. You and I were the basis of that live stream, which was totally new to us. But we just, we embraced the partner up challenge that we had. And I think we learned a lot. What's really interesting about that is if I look back on that experience, as uncomfortable as it was, it also built teamwork and it built new skills that you never knew that you were going to need. And little did we know that very soon after that, we were going to be doing a lot of staring down the camera and talking about delivering the same message in a different format. So that would be my advice to people around tackling something new is try it in a low risk space because you never know when you're going to need it. Yes. You don't have to limit yourself to partnering up just for when our challenge says you must partner up this week. For our challenges, whatever they are in any given month, we encourage you to get feedback or to partner up if you want to do that. Nothing says that this has to be an individual contribution. Taking those sorts of opportunities to practice working together with a team, with a partner, or just getting feedback. I noticed that some of the people who participated this month were coworkers, whether they were friends at work or whether they were part of a group or a a team of folks who were interested in the same things who got assigned to do some sort of partner work. If you are in an organization and you want to expose some of your colleagues to these kinds of ideas, you can take these challenges and use them in your own organizations as well. You can do it as a, a brown bag or some just simple get together on a monthly basis and use that as a way to get your colleagues interested or practicing in applying some of the storytelling with data approaches in the context of these challenges as well. One other thing I mentioned as I was, or I noticed rather, as I was looking through the submissions was Jacob mentioned that he worked with his family on his submission. He was more used to working with his colleagues virtually. And this was a scenario where he was working with his family in person in the room and (laughs) just commented on that was just a different experience to work with somebody in the same room again. So that got me thinking about the way in which business has shifted, of course, since the pandemic is we have collaboration that's happening virtually and in person. Yeah, it's it is harder, I think, to collaborate virtually than to collaborate in person. But I'm more old school. It's just that's my generation. I'm Gen X and we were used to being together in person. But that doesn't mean that I haven't learned to collaborate more electronically. There's so many tools. Actually, George Alexandru and Michelle this month talked about in their entry, they used Google Sheets to collaborate. They used Zoom to meet 
and to talk with one another. They built their challenge, I think, in using Google Slides or using the data visualization tools in Google. So they were able to share back and forth and use this shared document and then end up putting that together as their final submission. So there was synchronous and asynchronous and collaboration tools. And there's a whole host of ways that you can do this. And that's just, that's just one approach. There's no right or wrong way to do it. I think as long as you can agree at the outset what that collaboration looks like, it can be regular meetings, it can be working on the same document, it can be just commenting back and forth. It's whatever is comfortable for you and your partner. And if it's not working, the way that you're trying, try another way, try a different partner. Not everybody's going to be a good match for, yeah. for everybody. And that shouldn't turn you off to working with a partner. It's just a good opportunity to assess the way that you communicate and that you think you were coming across clearly, but maybe the other person didn't really understand what you were asking for, or you weren't clear in the feedback. So there is, there's something, I think you, there are ways in which you can also become better by doing a post-mortem on on those situations too. Yeah, that is something that we didn't explicitly ask of people in this challenge. But I think everybody who submitted, I didn't see or I didn't sense any like, disappointment from folks. I think the reaction was pretty universally positive to the experience, which is interesting given that so many people had so many different ways of choosing to partner up and collaborate. To me, I think that speaks to the inherent value of working with somebody else. And getting used to not relying just on yourself. Yeah. Partner up was for last month. We have an active challenge every month. What is the current challenge on the site? So the active challenge for the month is to take a famous data visualization and remake it. Mike, I think that you gave some examples of some particularly famous visualizations throughout the year that people could use as a starting point. There are a number of relatively well-known in the data visualization community. There's the Charles Menard visualization of Napoleon's march into Russia. There are the rose graphs that Florence Nightingale developed during the, I believe, the Crimean War. There's John Snow's map of the water pumps, the cholera map, as it is widely referred to. But there are other more modern, famous visualizations as well. There was the jittery needle that the New York Times decided to break out for the 2016 elections. There's the flatten the curve graph is a relatively famous visualization. But there's been lots of graphs that are either well known throughout history, whether they're standing the test of time or not. I make no judgment. But I think looking at a famous or a historical graph and remaking it using modern eyes, modern tools, modern approaches is an interesting way to see if the way that we used to visualize data is a relic of a bygone era or if it actually is something that we can still leverage today. But it is interesting to see how creative and how effective some visualizations can be when they are used for a specific purpose. When we are in business communications, we are often using easy to interpret charts, familiar chart types, because that is the fastest way to communicate critical insights. But some of these are much more for exploration or for getting your attention or for other purposes than just getting one message across very quickly. And so to explore these and to think about how people were able to craft these, as you mentioned, those with hand drawn like painstakingly created visualizations. 
so many years ago. I think it's interesting even just to explore that, let alone to then try and remake them or make a different version of them, mm -hmm. the modern era. But as I said, we've got some entries already. I invite you to go, as I said before, it's community.storytellingwithdata.com slash challenges, I believe is the best way to get to it. And that will be active through the end of March. So Elizabeth, one last question. Where can people find us and the rest of the Storytelling with Data team in person in the near future? We have a number of upcoming workshops that will be conducted in person. The one that's coming up soon is in London on April the 18th, followed by Chicago on May the 5th. And both of these dates will cover storytelling and presenting with data. So this is going to be a full day masterclass where you really can get hands on and immersive in strategies to both craft effective data stories as well as present them powerfully. So this will combine content from the first book, Storytelling with Data, as well as Cole's latest book, Storytelling with You, Plan, Create, and Deliver a stellar presentation. So you'll learn from both Cole and members of our team. And if you want to check out more information about the full day masterclass, you can find that on our website. We also have a number of virtual sessions upcoming if you're not able to travel. Those will be on May 23rd and June 6th. We'll provide links to those in the show notes. Yeah. And for anybody who wants to attend our upcoming sessions, whether in person or virtual, use the promo code PODCAST10 when you register and you'll get 10% off the cost of the workshop. So with that, always a pleasure to talk with you, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for partnering up. This was fun. Thank you for partnering up. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We'll see you next time.